From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We have the whole crew in here. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. This is Cade Massey. We're coming to you via Zoom as we have been for the last two years. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon as we typically do. And as we typically do, we're going to start out with a segment on COVID. We'll spend the first quarter on COVID, try to catch up on the world of the pandemic. Always interested, gentlemen, in hearing your take on what's going on in the world of the pandemic. What in particular this past week, COVID-19 related, caught your eye? Well, what caught my eye this week is quite enormous. I mean, so many states have gotten rid of their mask requirements, their vaccine requirements. And now what's happening is we're diverging into the this sort of interesting Netherland where some of the institutions are requiring it and others are not. It's all up to individual preference. And so I walked into a, a building in New York City yesterday and I'm like, what's the what's the policy? <laughs> what do I got to do? <laughs> and it's, it's like a whole new new experience. So uh, just building on what Adi said, um, it's interesting because the decision to require masks or not or vaccines or not, at least at the moment, it's a binary decision. You either do or you don't. And so what's interesting is, uh, and this has been talked about in the press, et cetera, is so what is the evidence that we've seen that suggests such a discrete jump in policy, meaning yes, vaccine required, yes, masks required to know that has led to this change? And so in some sense, the observables, since we're an analytic show, the observables seem continuous. I haven't seen a massive discontinuous jump that says, oh, the data has changed, but all of a sudden the policy changes. And it's almost like there's, you know, hurting on the decision like, oh, this other state went to got rid of mass. So that's the disconnect. Of course in it my, is. Wait, no, wait, wait, I know, but that's the disconnect that I'm seeing, which is that the, the outcomes appear to be changing in a continuous fashion. But the the, the the swiftness of the policy changes from yes to no seems obviously as a discrete decision and seems very abrupt. And just to clarify, are you trying to kind of predict policy changes as the why as a function of what's happening with COVID or the yes. other way around? No, it's oh, a good yeah. question. <laughs> I am trying I mean, to. Pre- the, the real prediction problem is COVID changes as a function of policy, right? I mean, that's kind of the what we've been trying <laughs> yeah, to do this whole time. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually exactly. So it's great. That's great for our listeners. I was trying to do the opposite. I was trying to predict policy change as the Y variable, the zero one, as a function of what's happening with this continuous time varying, correlated spatially functioning X, which is the degree of COVID and what has been. What's led to this change? One of your, the, the basic issue, you first got to separate the, the mandates and the masks. They, they're really looking at two issues. The mandates were designed to get, incentivize people to not, not only, not only designed to incentivize people to vac- vaccinate, but also to protect people and, and create herd immunity. Those two pillars, if you would think of them as three, They've gone, the science is, the, the reality of the variance, the data has, has pushed so far past those two uh, objectives that it's no longer meaningful to try to force people to vaccinate it, to protect other people, to obtain herd immunity. That's not happening. And so basically the idea is mandates to get people to vaccinate. Whoever's going to get vaccinated is already going to get it. There just doesn't seem to be any utility for a, max, a vaccine mandate. Nothing. Well, just to be or, clear, or, sorry, go ahead, Shane. Well, I was going to say, like, or put it, in, uh, I, I guess, a different way is that 
originally we were kind of thinking that it would be, you know, the ideal situation is that we'd have these vaccines and we'd get to herd immunity without, yep. you know, kind of the unnatural vaccinated way. That's right. To yeah. the extent that there even is a concept of herd immunity or protection from herd immunity, it's unclear that that's really even like as, as relevant for this situation. But to the extent that we've achieved herd immunity, it's actually the natural way of just either getting people who wanted to getting vaccinated, the people who didn't want it to getting COVID. Well, I think this is also related to what our guests spoke about, you know, a week or two ago, which is in some sense, um, all the virologists got excited when the original vaccine the, you know, the Pfizer and Moderna seem to be effective against preventing infections. And so the idea here is that get people vaccinated, there'll be less spread. And then what they found is that with Omicron, as I mean, Adi's talked about this many times in the show, there's very little evidence that suggests that the vaccine prevents infections from Mm -hmm. Omicron, does a great job presenting hospitalization and death. So in some sense, if the thought was, Let's get as many people vaccinated as possible because that will lead to less spread, which then will lead to less death against the unvaccinated. That's what I'm hearing Adi say is just not supported by the data anymore. So if that's the rationale to do it, that rationale is gone. And actually, just to to go forward with that, there's been a lot of hubbub about the failure to approve the vaccines for children. And the reason for that is that it isn't effective at preventing infection because it was built for the original strain. And Omicron and the new ones, are, it just doesn't do anything. And because children are, are, don't, don't get seriously ill from it, there's no plus side. And it, it, so that's why that the vaccine is stalled for five and under. And in fact, it probably is unnecessary for five well, to 12 either. So um, let, me just, let me just comment on that. So one of the things I put in our rundown was given Omicron, true, false, given Omicron, it's not clear vaccination of very low risk populations of which kids age below five, five to 12 would be in. Is it warranted at this point? And the one thing I'll say, though, is the thing I didn't realize when they saying it's less effective for five to 12, which it is, apparently they were getting a one third dose. Now, what's interesting about that is, so what can we learn from that? Can we learn? I think we can learn what I just said. At a one third dose, the vaccinations are not as effective for ages five to 12. Now, does that mean if we gave them the full dose that us 50-year-olds, Shane, 40-something-year-old got, that it wouldn't be as effective? I don't think we have any data to know and to extrapolate to a full dose. So I think before we were able to say the vaccine's not as effective for that age group, let's remember they got a one-third dose. So we just do They're not have data. size. I mean, this, well, no, 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 no. I, we've been doing this, Adi, for two years. I've not heard anybody suggest that dosage should be a function of body weight or other things. Maybe it should. I don't know. I, I'm just saying, I've been sitting with you. and I mean, ad, 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 adults span the range of like, you know, one to three times the weight of each other. And we right. certainly, that's not something that at all is factored into the shot they get, right? That's what I'm, uh, so you know that's what? my comment I, is that I've seen no evidence part. to suggest that weight has an effect. I want to come back real quickly. I want to come back to this point about that. I think Adi was the main one making about the 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 rat the, the reason well maybe it was Eric the, the reason that the regulation around children under five has stalled and it's interesting because you're basically saying there's no point um they don't they don't get hurt anyway and so it's all about infectiousness and the vaccine hasn't proven effective That's against it. infectiousness and so why bother and it's interesting it's you're basically saying look it's a not. It should be a non-issue, but it's not a non-issue with parents of kids that age. And that's so. I think that's a powerful message. In fact, there's a New York Times 
editorial like today. I read it. Well, you, you should be liking it, too, in some sense, oh, because he's like arguing for a ba- Bayesian, Bayesian approach to these regulatory decisions is his main push. But what, what I'm, the reason I'm pausing here and emphasizing this is that you're saying, well, he's kind of concerning himself with something he shouldn't concern himself with because the vaccine is not going to help stop the infectiousness. And it doesn't matter because the kid's not going to get really sick anyway. Let, let me respond to that, because actually I talked I, I read the article. He cites our friend and our former student and colleague, Blake McShane, in his article, talking about how p-value statistical significance should be replaced by other methods. And he recommends replacing it with Bayesian. But Blake's article and his compatriots doesn't recommend that. He he replaces, he recommends replacing it with confidence intervals and, and rather than standard thresholds for cutoffs, like statistical significance or not. And the reason why I didn't like the article is he doesn't actually mention even once the fact that the confidence intervals, given the data, don't don't allow or or fairly clearly demonstrate that the effect size isn't big enough to warrant the vaccination. It just doesn't do anything. It's Mm -hmm. not about statistical significance. It's about effect size. And that isn't mentioned once. But you did put your finger on something really important, Cade, which is the parents of little kids want this. And we as statisticians should be asking the question, why do they want something that doesn't have any value? Well, I, I, but I think most of the societal, I mean, I think parent, you, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not really a psychologist, but, <laughs> but my, my observation, my empirical is that parents, if you tell, if, if they feel that their kids are at risk of something, it does not actually matter how, or at least their risk assessment is incredibly risk adverse right. with regards to their children's health. And so, and, and, you know, we've had two years of fear, you know, with COVID in general, I think trying to kind of now convince parents that, oh no, it's fine. Your kid is, you know, COVID has, is definitely not going to harm your kid. You don't have to worry about a vaccination. I think that's, I don't know how fa- psychologically tenable that no, really it's- is. But Shane, it's because we've been telling, giving them the wrong message for two years. Well, yeah, no, I know. So, but 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 that's uh, we've been learning. We've been learning. So there have been mistakes yeah. made. So we've been we've been discovering what the effect size is, for example. Well, the only thing I was going to add was is just building on what Shane said is that you know it's the classic asymmetric loss function with almost no loss. At least no one has told me yet that kids under five, either in the tests or even people five to 12, that there's massively adverse reactions to getting the shots. So if getting the shot doesn't harm you or the rate is extraordinarily low, and even though it's a minuscule probability of getting COVID and getting severe illness, why not protect against the massive downside? And, you know, that's not just psychological. It's as statisticians, you make the decision that minimizes the expected loss. And that's the right decision to make. And if I were a parent with a kid under five, until someone showed me data that said this taking this vaccine will harm me in some way, I'm going to go play the expected game, which only is one sided in this case. No, I, I think that's I mean, that. Let's. I would actually like to kind of turn to one where the. I mean, I kind of agree with everything you just said. I think the trade-off is more interesting with the masks. 
That's a different issue. With mask wearing and children in schools, because that's one where I think it's more tangible, the trade-off. There is, you know, you can kind of argue, I mean, certainly you can argue for the benefit, the same argument that like, why not wear a mask? Because, you know, it it doesn't really hurt you, but it, you know, it does. It does. In in a learning environment, the mask does hurt you, especially as uh, for younger children. I think they're learning social And social interactions and all kinds of things. So, So at what point does that kind of, you know, at what point is the mask therefore like uh, you are you kind of actually trading off kind of social no actually you, know, Shane, you just gave more evidence for my argument if i told you right now for a small child or kids in, in elementary school that if they were to get the vaccine they wouldn't have to wear masks well i've just lumped another benefit on the positive side if that were true if every yeah, but it's not true i mean in that the mat you know i mean the, to the, we've just argued that the vaccine doesn't really do anything for spread no but it doesn't it, it doesn't do harm and it has the no potential. no no you can't say that eric you just i just said we that. have no evidence adi listen to what yeah, i said no, i said we have no evidence that, show me the evidence the, the the problem with the we're dealing with the alleged benefits that are so small that the alleged harms are 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 also small and it's just too hard to compare them with each other the vaccine could have a one in a hundred thousand chance of a major major problem with a kid we wouldn't know it because it's it hasn't been given to millions of kids yet so you agree with me that you have no evidence to suggest there's any harm at the moment like i said no no hold on a minute I'm not going to give a, a, a well. The a absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? Isn't yeah, that? Yeah, I'm not going to give an evidence. It has no benefit, Eric. Why would I give something that has no benefit? It because because I don't yet know it about negatives. No, that it's doesn't actually, make sense to me. So I I think there actually is evidence that there is a small, significant effect, not massive, a small significant effect for a vaccine for people under the age of 12. I've seen no evidence to suggest there's harm. I'm not saying there isn't harm. I'm saying I've seen no evidence. So if I were a parent of a small child right now, just it, just from a statistical argument, I've seen no evidence of harm. I didn't say it doesn't exist. And I've seen some evidence of a small effect. You can do that expected calculation and there you go. But that, but that, that beneficial effect, are you talking specifically about spread spe- effect? Benefit to spread, reducing no, spread no, or to health no, to my child. So again, kind of again. Then, if if there is no evidence, or you have not seen evidence of an effect of, of the vaccine on spread, you cannot lump the vaccine as a benefit into the whole like avoiding that, like like this whole thing where oh, if we give them the vaccine, then they won't have to wear masks. Then that that yeah, that, that logic say- doesn't work if there's no benefit of the vaccine to spread. Yeah, I mean, that's true, Chain. You're right. And that's a great second point. But I have to get right to the issue here at hand, which is, first of all, there is harm. The kids get sick and they get sick for 24 hours, 48 hours. I'm never going to make my kid have a 50 percent chance of, of a 24 hour, 48 hour illness for no upside. And I, by the way, the fact that you say there's some upside five to 12, maybe there's a little upside there. Their chance of having a serious outcome is actually quite a bit higher than than below five unlike the flu for which there's an uptick at very young ages we're not seeing this with covid at all this is an ex- a disease that basically exempts the very littlest ones and instead of just saying hey that's wonderful and we scare the living shit out of parents and and Cade, that was your point earlier and i think that was a terrible mistake and uh we never and that was i think in some measure designed to protect us us older people yeah but i think just to paraphrase Cade's point i think it wasn't a mistake at like it wasn't intentional like like at the time we didn't know we were making a mistake (laughs) 
Well, I'll tell you what, I, well, I, my, my takeaway from just listening to you guys for the last few minutes is that this is one of the few issues in the whole two years of this pandemic where we have pretty firm disagreement among the panelists here. Like, and so and this, this just, I think, to me, reinforces how difficult an issue it is. And you guys were talking about the two parents on this show with decisions about their children, not that young, but having had children that young. And it's just striking to me how we usually work through this thing and end up in the same place. And you guys are making both reasonable positions for the decision. You've got, you're just weighting things a little differently. You're not calling the world different. You're just putting weights a little different. And that leads to different decisions. And I, to me, that's well, reinforcing of hard, how hard an issue this is. You know, we can, I can change the topic slightly, but only slightly. Eric and I both have uh, boys. They're not, they're men. They're in their, in their 20s. And the question has always been about whether do do you do you boost a boy in their twenties? And I have a and I have, I specifically advise my son not to get boosted. He's had two doses and he's got COVID. And while the negative side effects are very low, one in about ten thousand of a myocarditis, there doesn't seem to be any benefit for him having the booster. So I just said, don't. Eric, do you do you agree with my calculation? Have you given advice to your sons or just let the I, I have, I have, yeah. but I, I was basing it on, I remember us seeing a graph that you even talked about on the show. I think it might've been an episode yeah. where it was just me and you that mm-hmm. showed that if you're boosted and you've had COVID, the length of time for which you are, uh, have protection lasts an extremely longer period than if you've just been vaccinated twice, or if you've had it, or even the combination of the two. So it's in some sense, the interaction effect between boosting and having COVID. Now, again, I've recommended to my kids, my two older sons that are in their 20s, that they do get boosted. And it was on the basis of that curve that showed that basically there is no waning, at least over a six-month period, of protection from the interaction of boosting and having COVID. That's why I recommend it to them to get it. Interesting. Super interesting. All right, guys, I want to do two other things on this segment before we move on. Uh, One, Eric's got a little bit of a game for us to play in a minute. I'm going to bring uh, COVID world to one of our traditional exercises in sports analytics. But before we do that, I just want to mention quickly an article that I saw this past week. I sent it around. I'm not sure if you guys had to take a chance to look at it, but it's a really interesting empirical observation on the effectiveness of masks. And these, this is a meta study of mask effectiveness prior to the pandemic. And what, what is interesting about this is because if you remember in the beginning of the pandemic, the, the public policy officials were reluctant to recommend masks, even when it seemed obvious to intuition anyway that we should be recommending masks. They were reticent. And it's because there was conflicting evidence in the literature on the effectiveness of masks. And so these guys have gone in. This is a study in the Oxford University Press Public Health Emergency Collection. Uh, Kalapara, Kalapara is the lead author here. I'm just noticing that Talib is on this. Nassim Talib is a smart guy, but a bit of an ass. Very high profile on, internet, on, on Twitter, but he's a co-author on this thing. Anyway, they, 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 they observe that in the historical studies, there's a sharp divide. Those that have found mass to be ineffective are universally underpowered statistically. And those that are sufficiently powered statistically universally find mass to be effective. It is, it is almost, it, is, it may not be quite perfect, but it's almost a perfect divide between those that found them to be effective and those that didn't. And it reconciles this conflicting literature. Super interesting paper. If it holds up, it should clarify in the future what the CDC and other public policy officials 
do in situations like this. That was really interesting. And you guys as hardcore statisticians would appreciate their digging into it. So for example, one of the problems in these studies is they have a treatment group. These guys are supposed to wear a mask and, you know, adherence to it is a real problem. But if, if your control group isn't adhering to the, if your treatment group isn't adhering to the treatment, then you've got a, you've got a power issue, um, for example. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting, an interesting paper. So Eric, let me turn it over to you because you want to, you want us to do a little bit of an over under type game here on what's going to happen over the next, whatever regarding the code. Regarding well, it, the it was, I, uh, yes, I love over under. I love, in fact, I love when we do over on this. I was calling true false because they're true, true false. false statements. Right. So I'll, I'll just, we'll just go with them and I'll, there's four questions. So we can each go first on each of them. Uh, deaths will go below 500 per day just like in the summer of 2021. So this summer, will deaths be lower than 500 per day? And just for point of reference for our listeners, right now, they're still in the 1,500 to 2,000 per day level. So I'll start with, just on my screen, I'll start with the lower left, Shane Jensen. True or false, deaths will go, all right? They will go below 500. Not sure they'll stay, but they will go below. Cade? I'm going to go no, and I I don't have a, I don't have a, a great reason for it. My first intuition was, yes, of course. And I just want to kind of go against that first intuition and say, look, you know, people, this thing has lasted longer than we thought. There may be a new variant. We're higher than we ever would have expected to be even at this moment. I'm going to go high. I mean, I uh, guess I, my logic for saying, because we did get there last summer and last summer, well we did not, yep. last summer, we did not have nearly as many vaccinations or natural immunity. Yeah. 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 Uh, Adi. Yeah, all all great points. They all they all kind of go against each other. I'll add another another one to the mix. I would I think that a lot of a, a lot of the deaths are with COVID rather than from COVID, and I think those are going to stay high. Omicron was way more infectious than Delta ever was, which is why um, the rates had gone so low in the summer. Um, just there was just nobody getting COVID at all back then, so it was hard to hard to get positive. But I still think it might drop before five hundred because that's just the still a lot of deaths. I think we're going to see a big drop down. So I'm on the fence, but I'm going to toss a coin up over. <laughs> over. I'm, just, I'm just going to go over because I think N is going to stay high and P is going to drop, but not enough to compensate for the heavier, heavier, heavier infectiousness. Y'all are making me comfortable. I thought I had no company on that one. All right. No. Let's go to the next one. All right. So I'll start with Cade this time. At-risk populations will be instructed to get a fourth shot. So a second booster shot. You're like Adi, go we're first. calling on everybody. You want to go first? Adi, go I'm first. I'm going to go first this one. Um, All right. Uh, yes, without a doubt. I, I know that. I know. Uh, absolutely. I think that the, I'm not sure there's actually going to be evidence for it, but I, I do, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to your, to your previous point. I think the downside is going to be sufficiently low to warrant that even if they're, even if you don't know for sure, it's going to be recommended almost certainly. So I'll go next, even though it should have been Cade, let me say, but I'll bullet Cade go first on the next one. Let me say my concern. I just read an article that one of our experts maybe a year and a half ago talked about is, can your body get too much vaccine and the benefits starting to get diminishing marginal returns? And there were a bunch of experts that got together and discussed, now this may not be for the immunocompromised population, but why might we may not get a fourth shot, for example? Well, essentially there there is diminishing marginal returns. And if you get the fourth shot now and you hypothetically are forward-looking and might need a fifth shot, sixth shot, it could 
would be less effective. So I think for the mass population, I would be very surprised if I were to get a fourth shot, but it would not surprise me if the immunocompromised did, because they might have the bigger boost than I would. Their effect size is going to be a lot bigger. They're going to get a lot more antibody generation than I'm going to get from the fourth shot. You're getting, you're, you're agreeing. I'm agreeing. True. My, my instinct here was, was no. And I think it's because the world just seems to be um, backing away from all kinds of uh, aggressive policies. And I think there's just a universal laying down of arms against pandemic. Um, I feel like I'm a little bit blind here because we have a lot of evidence on the effectiveness of the shots and the boosters in the, in the not immunocompromised population, but I, I don't know what the evidence is on that. So I'm a little blind here, but I'm going to go, no, just because there's kind of a retreat. Okay. And Shane? Maybe I'm being overly semantic, but what do you mean by instructed? Like, do you like mandated or uh, no, no, no. recommended? CDC guideline. uh, in, in guidelines. CDC recommendations. Yeah. 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 Let's say CDC yes. recommendations. I mean, I, I, th- I think honestly, we're moving towards a world where there'll be like an annual COVID booster slash vaccine and the CDC will definitely recommend we get it. Can, uh, Eric, you did say at risk, not immunocompromised, which is also older population. Well, that, that's true. I, and by the way, I might lump, oh. that might change your answer. I would probably lump that in too. I would say, well, I mean, it basically, if you want to use that, which I agree with you, Adi, you could just say people for whom the benefit is greater than the cost will be recommended to do it. <laughs> yeah, of course, those people will be recommended. And that was a really original debate. We just had a difference of opinion about the weighting function to put on the risks associated yep. with that. Let's go to the next one, which we have to get in. Airline and mass transportation mask mandates will stay through the rest of this calendar year. So I'll start with you, Kate. It's like going flying. You just got off an airplane. Are you going to have, it's December 24th, 2022. Kate Massey's flying to back to Texas from somewhere. Does he have to wear a mask in the airport, on the plane, the whole thing? I think I probably would have said yes before I saw that the airlines have petitioned, even just like today or yesterday, for um, a relaxation of this requirement on the it's like a, it, it's re-upped every 90 days or something and it's about right. to come up and they March want it 18th to, March 18th by the way is when it will expire unless it's extended so they ask that either it let let it be expired or that they tell the world that 90 days from now we're gonna let it be expired now whether the government goes along is a different matter I don't know but again I think we're in kind of a retreat mode across public policy across municipalities and so it wouldn't surprise me. I'm going to, it's a little aggressive, it seems, but I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, those things will be re- at least relaxed, if not gone by the end of the year. Shane? On a plane, I think definitely through 2022. I mean, how long, how long ago was it that somebody tried to like make a bomb out of like little containers of fluid? And we still, 20 years later, are like, you know, not allowed to go on planes with little containers of fluid. And so I think these things do tend to kind of, come you know back off slowly but in airports like i think it's only going to be on planes that it'll still be like mask uh, required for 2022 okay i'll go myself i'll say true and as a matter of fact um less having to do with covid um i think i'm gonna wear masks in mass transportation settings in lots of ways just because i don't want to get the flu colds lots of other stuff no i mean maybe i don't know kate maybe but i'm gonna say sure um, i i might i mean i've got lots of friends that live in new york to take the subway to work every day since i grew up in new york and they're saying they're just gonna wear a mask for the rest of their work lives because they've never been less sick getting just routine colds and flus and other stuff because they're wearing masks now. So I I don't want a cold or a flu or any of that stuff. So yeah, I I might, but 
But my answer is I'm answering true. Adi Weiner. All right. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to go with Kate on this one for the first time. We have concurrence on this side. I think it's going to get dropped by the end of the year. And I do think that people will wear It's not the question, but many people will be wearing their masks on those planes. Uh, uh, huge numbers. Just like when I walk into the Trader Joe here, Trader Joe's out here, 95 percent of people are wearing masks, although it's not required. So you're going to see lots of people wearing it, but it won't be required. I will just push back a little bit on what you said about uh, about the decrease in colds and all that other stuff. That's true. But those same people who are aggressively wearing their masks are also not seeing people the way they used to. So there's a confounder there. Yep. Yep. I, I think that's fair. And maybe the last one. And I guess I'll go first. My turn. This wave is the last wave of the covid pandemic, but an endemic will continue. Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm going to say false. I think there's going to be an, just because of the number of people worldwide getting COVID, I think there'll be another variant that will lead to something that at least experts will say is another wave and another level of pandemic. So I'm going to say false to that. So, Adi, you want to go next? Well, um, it's, it's a tricky one. Like Hong Kong is right now and New Zealand, places that haven't seen much COVID are now like swimming in it. Um, and mostly there, and Hong Kong in particular, has a massive crackdown going down. Um, nevertheless, I do think that this last wave, the Omicron wave, the places like where we live, Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, acted like it was a, I mean, they just, everyone think back to March 2020, not quite, but similar, but 90, 90% of the, by, by area in the United States, did nothing, <laughs> just nothing. And I think the next wave will be more or less responded to by even more of the country endemically rather than pandemically. So I think in the United States, we're not going to see another wave reaction. We'll have endemicy. Globally, I think you're more likely to have something called a, a, another wave, but not in the United States. Uh, Cade? Uh, I, I uh, agree. No, no more waves in the U.S. Um, the, this Omicron did too much damage. It kind of it wiped out the, the, the dead material that would be otherwise burned up by the next fire. Shane, we can wrap us up. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm with Kate on that one. I, I certainly think in terms of like if we define pandemic versus endemic in terms of how society reacts, I think there will not be a big another big wave of reaction, you know, virology wise, whether it's a pandemic or that spreads versus an endemic. I don't know. But yeah, I, I was referring just of, to the virology yeah, part. But Adi exactly. makes a good point about the exactly. reaction. I, I, I would go with no if it's the reaction. Yes, potentially on the virology part. Mm hmm. All right. Super interesting, guys. Listen, before we wrap up the segment, I want to ask you a question. Um, Y'all can hoot me down on this if you want to. So it's a little bit unorthodox, but I'm curious. And I feel like it's only appropriate that we at least acknowledge what's going on in Ukraine right now. But I think there's I'm, I'm curious about the meta lessons from the pandemic, because it feels like these are the pandemic. We, we There's so much collective intelligence going on. Like we're, we're reading a variety of sources, some social media, some traditional media, some academic papers. We're talking about it with a variety of people. We're making sense of the pandemic, all to forecast what we think is going to happen real time in this hugely important, destructive event. And in a lot of ways, we're doing the same thing with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I'm curious if if we learned, if did y'all learn anything over the last two years about how you learn about the pandemic? as it unfolds, that would apply to how we're observing and trying to learn 
what's happening in Ukraine as it unfolds and as we forecast what's going to happen next. Because there are some similarities. And I'm, and I'm curious. It is an exercise in collective intelligence. It really is. I'm curious. Do you see those parallels? Do you feel those parallels? Do you, do you think you're going about your sense making any differently having come through the last two years? A very practical way to put it. Yeah, I'll just what, go first very quickly. Real, real, Sorry. real quickly, Eric. I, I think what I'm most interested in is how can we best make sense of and forecast Russia and Ukraine, given what the practices and the behaviors that we've learned over the last two years? Yeah, so there's two quick things. I can say them in one sentence each. The first one is um, I'm never going to overestimate certainty or underestimate uncertainty. Again, I think uh, what we've seen is, or so many times, I'll speak for myself during COVID, where I said statements that turned out to be 100% patently false. And uh, that's number one. The second thing is, you know, we have probably one of the world's experts here, uh, Phil Tetlock, and your colleague of yours, Kate, I know, or someone you've worked with and talked about. He's got the Better Judgment Project. I'd love to get, I, I'm sure maybe he's already done this. I'd love to get a bunch of people making judgments and looking at ensembles and collective forecasts of what might happen in this case. But those are my two things about collective intelligence, what I'm going to learn. I'm a bad judge of uncertainty, and I'm not going to underestimate it again. Mm-hmm. So w- real quickly, just as an application of that, a few days into Russia's invasion, there was so much good news and there was so much skepticism about the Russian military. You could apply your uncertainty principle there and say, look, you, you should have known, you should have been like hedging those reactions, regressing those predictions towards uncertainty just on that principle alone. And I think that's, that's mostly the way the world's judgment has moved in the most recent days. Adi, you've been reacting here a little bit. What are your thoughts? Well, I think everything you've said is correct. I do think that... Um, we, we, we obtain so much more information outside of the usual historical ways that we got gathered information through Twitter, through Facebook, through Instagram, through the social media that often gives us a very false impression of what's actually happening. And I think we saw a lot of falseness with COVID. And I think we're seeing a lot of falseness with Ukraine Um, in particular. I mean, yeah, it's great to see people standing up to the Russian army, but I don't see that, that I, I think that that's not a long run phenomenon. I also think on the plus side, I think that the social media has probably united the world against Ukraine. I mean, against Russia in a way that without social media, it wouldn't have happened. Adi, so I, I hear you that um, we can we can have false false narratives emerge and there's a lot of consensus around them, especially when they're desired narratives on social media. But what's also true is you often get fresher news from mm-hmm. social media than you do. I mean, I've had the experience over the last week of looking at things on Twitter and then going to the New York Times. And you're, you're it may be, it may not be exactly right, but you're going to be ahead of the times if you're looking at a, a current Twitter feed. So I think there's a, there's a balance there. I, I, I'd like to know how to better strike it because you definitely can get misled, but at the same time, I mean, that's so cut is so cutting. So one prescription ought to be, that you need to be following different kinds of sources. As Very good. Very as good. Versus possible. Not just your social media, Cade, but the, also the New York Times, which is. Yeah, no, I know. I'm so common. guilty. That's my newspaper. The New York Times. Great, Cade. Great. Real diverse. <laughs> really rounded out. <laughs> well, I have plenty of friends who send me Wall Street Journal editorials. So I get no, some, but that's I get some counterbalance. I mean, no, we I, talk but about I do think, uh, you know, what, what it gets me, what the last two years gets me thinking about, and even the, two years that preceded that is just how I think 
how our, our, our perception of, of, of the world is a very like kind of local social network kind of filtered perception. And I think you're, you, what you're talking about to be kind of vigilant, to try and actually as much as possible, you know, reach out to kind of like, you know, not our usual kind of sources for information, I think is, is something that is always important. I mean, I don't think in specific to the Ukraine, I, I agree kind of like, I'm getting a lot of my kind of information about the Ukraine situation in the Ukraine through social media as well. And I think it is like kind of more cutting edge, or at least seems like more personal and real in a lot of the kind of stories I hear compared to major media outlets. But I do think that there is, you know, there, I, I, I guess I've become more and more conscious or, or, or kind of, you know, aware of, you know, that that is sort of like filtered by my particular choosing of a network of friends and kind sure. of, and, and I will take, I will like take that. mine back, but I will just say, I like Cade's answer better than my answer. And if I did what Cade <laughs> suggested, which is to look at independent information sources, you'd lead to greater uncertainty in your beliefs. Right. So I will take back yeah. what I said, and I like Cade's answer better than mine. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I do like Cade's answer. I, I'll remind Cade that the, the, both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are available for free to Penn professors. So you should definitely have access to both. <laughs> I, I do have access. Access alone isn't sufficient, it turns it's, out. Uh, you actually have to read it. Um, there are, I, I'll finish by pointing out both my grandfather and my wife's grandfather were born in the Ukraine. And there's 300,000 Jews living there, and they are pumping out. Mine too, Adi. My grandfather was born in, my grandfather and grandmother were born in Ukraine. Wow, wow, remarkable. Well, listen, I love this idea of talking to Tetlock. Um, Maybe we could get him on, Maddie. Um, He might come on and talk a little bit about what good judgment is seeing. They have panels of, of people who are making forecasts about this all the time. It'd be fascinating to know what they're showing. All right, guys, that's been a long Q1, mostly COVID, a little bit of Ukraine. We will do sports next. We got three quarters. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You can jump into the conversation. We'd love it if you would. The easiest way to do it is to hit us up on Twitter. Our handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics. We love to hear from you. Suggestions, criticisms, observations, whatever you got, hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. You can also send us emails. Our mailbag, the email address is moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. Again, moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. We read all of your email, and we love getting it from you. We get as much as we can onto the air, but send us your suggestions, your observations, your criticisms, whatever you got. We'd love to hear from you. All right, guys, running into a couple of open topic segments here in Q2 and Q3. We're going to do an interview in Q4, NBA related, as we turn our eyes towards other non-football sports. We're in the middle of basketball season, Um, but across all sports, I think I know what's caught your eye, especially this afternoon, as I believe there's news here on Tuesday afternoon out of the collective bargaining in Major League Baseball. What's the latest? Have they, have they actually canceled opening day or they've canceled some First games? two series of the season just got canceled by the okay. uh, owners or the, the commissioner. You know, this is remarkable. When we first started talking about this labor trouble a few months ago, everyone thought it was not a big deal, that it was kind of going to be um, formality to some extent. Certainly not turned out to be a formality. Um, any any insights, any observations over what's been going on over the last couple of weeks? Of course, we had a guest two weeks ago to give mostly the union side of things, but 
Um, anyway, I'm curious. You guys have been following me probably more closely than I have. I think it's interesting from a negotiation perspective, but, but I, mostly I think it's just a shame. I mean, these guys are just killing, killing value and they're not, they don't have such a robust game to play that cavalierly, it seems to me, with the sport and with the fans. What are y'all thinking? I couldn't agree with you more. It's not such a robust game for them to play so cavalierly and also so almost pointlessly. But the way it's been explained to me is the owners, owners try, are trying to, they want to make more money on a cash flow basis. The sport has been very profitable for them just by owning a team. That's they the issue. Keep going up in value, but it's far more precarious. I don't want to use the word precarious in the dangerous sense, even that's what it means. Um, but it just doesn't, produce uh it often the expenses are often greater than their than their than their than their income on an annual basis and they're liking to protect that as if they want both sides and i i object i think the value in baseball comes in owning the team and in the preserving our national heritage i'll say that right out that's where i believe in it and i'm disgusted by it i i agree with adi this is where a great intersection between you know sports analytics and business they basically want to protect the floor they want to make sure they make money every single year. And all the offers they have made, in some sense, just because of the TV contracts, et cetera, guarantee that the owners will make money in every single year. And the players are like, yeah, but your team's, you know, the, I know, the compound annual growth rate of value in owning a team is like 20% a year. And so now the question is the players who on average have like a three-year career, they have a short time span. So actually, if you look at the issues that the players are trying to protect, interestingly, and I like this, they're trying to protect the bottom. They're not worried about the Giancarlo Stantons and the Aaron Judges of the world who are making 10 million plus. They would like, for example, the minimum salary in baseball, which I think is something I saw like 572,000. Not that that's not a lot of money. It's a huge amount of money. But that seems low to me. And it's the lowest of, I think, most of the major sports. So it's, I agree with Adi. It's a great connection to business. They want the value to go up and the cash flow to be positive every single year. And the players are like, we only have short lifespans in this game. We, we need to at least make a certain minimum living if we get it to the major leagues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough, I mean, you know, that kind of like that major league salary doesn't even recognize the kind of attrition that takes to get even into that elite company. I mean, you know, really it's, you know, it's a huge hierarchical organization, you know, kind of like labor organization. And the owners would like to kind of characterize it as billion, you know, like kind of that these are millionaires arguing over more money referring to the Giancarlo Stantons or the, of the world, but really it's, you know, the vast, vast majority of baseball players, I mean, are, are, well compensated relative to most professions, you know, like compared to nurses or teachers or something like that, but are not, you know, are not these kind of multimillionaire kind of well, agents yeah. that are demanding you know, a due amount of money. I just want to, I just want to add to that, that you're talking about also the minor league system. And, mm-hmm. and we, we really only observe the very tip of this thing. And most economic models would suggest that the compensation should be quite high at the top. If it's essentially a tournament among competitors to see who gets to do that. And and most of them aren't making any money at all. The minor league guys make no money at all. But the reason they do that is for the chance of very good paydays. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. First of all, baseball is an enormous, enormous professional league, much, much bigger than baseball, than football and basketball with this incredible pyramid. And second of all, I mean, the real issue with the 570 is you only get get that per game. It's prorated. So if you're back and forth from the minors, you aren't making that much. But I mean, 
my real issue is is the, just the, the insistence on kind of damaging the game with all kinds of extra playoffs and all these sort of hanger on issues that seem to be very important to the owners um, and the you know the salary cap stuff that they're trying to. This is all about big money, not not the small money to the large numbers of people, which often make a go out of it till the twenty three, twenty four, twenty five, and then they go and do something else. That's not where, that's not holding this up. It's the big money that is. Yeah, the, the standard, you know, solution to this, which would be much more in your area, Cade, in the decision theoretic context would be, you know, if owners would be willing to raise the bottom side, but on the other hand, if there turns out to be an overwhelming surge in popularity for baseball, let them gain on the upside. And to me, that's a standard way to deal with this. Now, if the players reject that, it's because they want the bottom end, but they also want free market. And, you know, if someone can make $150 million a year, pay it to them. To me, if I were trying to negotiate, I would agree to all the bottom, the, the, the lower level players to, uh, you know, minimums to go up, you know, pensions to go up, all the benefits to go up for the, for the average player. But I wouldn't have a problem giving the owners a larger fraction of the upside if that upside happens. I don't have a, that's the way I would try to negotiate it. Interesting. Shane? Yeah, and actually, I guess what kind of like is on my mind is sort of some of the structural, I mean, Adi already referred to some of the structural changes that could come out of whatever. I mean, they're going to fight about it for hopefully not too much longer, but they'll go back and forth. It probably is just a money thing at this point, but there could be major structural changes that come out of this, like the universal DH and expanded playoffs. And I think we are going to see expanded playoffs. I think, you know, I think it's right now it's, they're basically arguing about whether it'll be 14 teams versus 12 teams. Um, and I, I was kind of curious, I, you know, I kind of put a rundown. How do you guys feel about, I mean, Audie, yeah, I, I, I've already heard how you feel about it. And I, <laughs> I could have predicted that by is that, does this change anything about the game from when Teddy Roosevelt watched it? <laughs> yes. Then I oppose it. That's right. So hold on for clarity, remind us how many teams make the playoffs now. And also remind us the, the progression we've seen over the last, I don't know, 20 years on the All right. It's currently 10 teams, right? So right now it's no. 10. There's, there's six divisions, each division leader, and two wildcard teams from each league. So that's 10. Uh, the two wildcards play each other, and they play the – In a so one-game playoff. In a one-game playoff. In a one-game playoff. So in some measure, it's not really 10 because six are so – I mean, have such a weakened position. So six are, are, are considered winners, and four are, are – are, are, oh, yeah, they're making it, but they are – they have to go a one game. Playoffs. I mean, I think we still should count it as a ten team, just without knowing what those wild how those wild cards yeah, would so, be handled so it's in still the future 10, anyway. But if you go back in time, um, uh, for many years it was four. There was just uh, the winners of, of each of the divisions. Four. There used to be just two divisions in each league. Two divisions to and and some time in the nineties, late nineties, they changed it to add the wild card. Um, and then before that, it was just two leagues. One one. It was called the pennant, winning the pennant. Yeah. You know, the Giants win the pennant every year. And then okay, but the, big, the, knock, the knock on that system was that you've got these six or seven team divisions eight. and then yeah. eight, eight team divisions and like yeah. four of them or five of them are out of it by July. Yes. So, yeah, I'm with you. I just, I, I, by the way, I loved uh, Shane's Teddy Roosevelt uh, comment about Adi, <laughs> but I will say the following as someone that is a historian about baseball. Um, I like having more teams in the playoffs because it makes baseball interesting for more teams in August and September. I know we talked about it last year. There was a point in August where if, if they had the old system with just four teams in each league, like 
60% of the teams or 70% were out come August 15th. But with the additional wild cards, I think it was like mm-hmm. the other, the flip, like 60 or two thirds of the teams still had a chance, a legitimate chance to make the wild card. I think it makes baseball much more exciting. Okay, so what's the optimal number? I agree. Just that, like there's a, there's a qualifying part of the season and then there's a knockout part of the season. What's the optimal number to move from qualifying into the knockouts? Well, I mean, so, I mean, I kind of like, I, I, I totally agree with Eric. I think the, the, the main benefit of more unexpanded playoff is that more teams are in it in contention until the end of the season. Okay. Then the you're downside, like 14. The downside 14. though, the, 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 the upside no. of more restricted playoffs is that only really deserving teams over the 162 game season get in there and have a chance because we all know that the playoffs themselves, even if they expanded the number of are very stochastic like you know it's basically coin flips at that point much more stochastic than other sports i mean it's not stochastic as hockey so so one one way i would definitely draw this line or the way i i would not want to expand the playoffs as much as they expanded to say we don't want to go the route of basketball and hockey where literally 500 teams are are, are make it in and if you go 14 if you go 14 the way it would work is the three division winners are always going to make it you'd have four wild cards who then would play off, play yeah. off, and play off. So you, that would get down to one. And then that one would join the other three, and then you'd have or, four or, or, and four. I mean, not necessarily. You could have just a, an crazy. entire, like, best of three or best of five wild card round with the division winners with buys. You could – well, you'd have – I mean, similar there, to football, there, Shane. There, Shane, similar to football, if you have yeah. seven, one team gets a buy, the other – three six would play each other which i'm definitely against a hundred percent against but i agree with you the real tragedy would be you said it if 500 teams start making it in baseball that i'm not for i like this i like the way they have it now i think 10 teams three and two wild cards we could argue whether that should be a one game playoff or three game playoff whatever i think that's about right i think it's about the right number did you have to have 85 86 88 wins to make the wild card you know that seems about right but I have to say, it does from the, the the players generally think of this as not mattering to them because they don't get paid extra for playoffs, and the, yet the owners make money through the through the additional revenue. And uh, but it, it, there's a cost to this because if you don't need to buy 90 wins to make the playoffs, you only need to buy 87, then the value of a win is cheaper, and therefore you don't have to spend as much. I mean, obviously there'll be some serious spending at the top still, but. A typical team won't have to won't have to spend as much to make the playoffs. Agreed, and I mean, like, I, I mean, I think that's the problem with the kind of way baseball is configured right now is that there's not enough kind of incentive to for for bad teams to get better, basically, because of the revenue sharing they, yep. they currently have and, and everything. You know, I mean, the Miami Marlins and Pittsburgh Pirates of the world essentially kind of have you know entered sort of a farm system kind of mode where you know they're going to make money and increase the value of their franchise regardless of the on product or on field sort of success and somehow we either need to incentivize by having it still be relatively restricted to get in the playoffs or even better i would love to have some kind of more kind of floor on spending basically on on players or something that that would Um, be great that would be i I think i think that's way more important to the future of baseball than a cap i think the floor is far far more um, important well there is by the way there is a there is a floor and remember there was a there was a year a couple years ago where the Rays were didn't were so far and the Marlins were so far below the floor they were going to have to distribute that extra money to the players on the team like they were 15 million under which meant each of the 30 players on the roster were going to get a $500,000 bonus because they had to spend a certain amount of money and then they signed a couple of guys so there is a floor it might be too low yeah but yeah there is I, a floor. I guess I would argue the floor need the floor needs to be configured such that 
you know, there's not this like mag two magnitudes of difference in payroll between teams right. or, or, or magnitude, I guess, of difference in payroll. I like Adi's thought, though. You don't have to buy with the extra wildcard teams. You don't have to buy 90 wins. You only have to buy a smaller number. And that's important for the owners. That's a great too. point. That's well, a great it's, point. It's great also point. interesting. You look at you look at, you know, the Braves won last year. I think most people didn't expect that to happen. Mm-hmm. And they're not the they're not the big, you know, Dodgers, Red Sox, Yankees. They're the. You know, they're not the Indians either, but it just shows that the more you broaden the playoffs, given how chance oriented is, I don't know. I'm curious how the how the I'm curious how the big money teams feel about that. Uh, eighth most favored team going into this season. The the Braves, the world champion Braves are the eighth uh, most favorite to win the World Series, according to the Las Vegas betting odds right now. So you're right. They won the World Series and they're the eighth most favorite. The Dodgers have the shortest odds, followed shortly by the Yankees and Astros. A lot of familiar, familiar names up there. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. We've got open segments line um, quarter coming up next, and then an interview in Q4. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Got Eric Bradlow in for this quarter. Shane Jensen is in for this quarter. And this is Cade Massiotti. Had to step away for the second half of the show. Going to be a short Q3. We've got a long interview coming up in Q4. We're talking to Ben Dowsett. He's a 538 rider on the NBA. Deep dive. Deep dive. Fun dive on the NBA. So we'll hold off on NBA conversations. We get Eric's opinion on James Harden as he hit the court for the Sixers in the past week for the first time, which is good fun. He and Ben kicked that one around at the end of the show. Gentlemen across the wide world of sports that we haven't talked about yet, what has caught your eye? Well, just because I, I, I'm such so passionate about it is, you know, let's talk about tennis just for a minute. So um, I think everybody knows Nadal had one of the great stories of all time when he won the Australian Open this year to get to 21 majors, beat, who's now the number one player in the world, Daniil Medvedev. Uh, beat him in five sets. Um, Nadal is still undefeated in 2022. He's won. He's played three tournaments. He's won three tournaments, including beating Medvedev again, the number one player in the world. Uh, so I'm starting to think, and he looks fantastic. He looks better than I've seen him in five years. And he says his health is fantastic. So real I'm, quickly, I'm, Eric, we, we, we te- was it a Monday a week ago or so? I was trying to get you to watch some game. You're like, I'm watching tennis. I'm watching adult, but it sounded like he was having trouble. Rafa was having trouble at, at some point. Am I, am I making that up? Yeah, no, you're, you're not, you're making okay. it up because he didn't lose a set okay. in the match. He played a good match against Cam Norrie. Who's a, a number one British player now in the finals. It was a good match. Um, but again, I thought Nadal played very well in that match. Not great. And he beat Cam Norrie, who's like number nine or 10 in the world, 6'4", 6'4". And it was, you know, he didn't really break a sweat. I will just say the following. I think Nadal wins the French. I don't know why he wouldn't win the French. He was not healthy last year. Uh, When he's healthy, he has to be the overwhelming favorite on the French. He gets the 22 majors and you say, well, what's the big? All right. Well, then Nadal, then Djokovic, forget Federer. Federer's not winning three more. Now Djokovic has to win three more majors to pass him. That's assuming Nadal doesn't win a couple more. I I would never have guessed, given how much he was out in 2021, that he'd now be the favorite in my mind to end up with the most all-time majors. I don't know how. I understand Djokovic may play for four or five more years, but so might Nadal. And I'd rather have a two 
if he wins the French, I'd rather have a two major lead. It's amazing. Yeah, much less with that, with that, with that. He's carrying some serious sandbags as well without being able to play in tournaments that require vaccinations. So, geez. All right. That's interesting. Well, I'm glad to know that it's not just Djokovic handicapping himself, but also Nadal playing well. And let me just comment also, Djokovic is starting to look. I've said this for the last eight years in our show. He's starting, just starting, to look like the bimodal Djokovic. He lost to Yuri Vesely, number 120 in the world. This is Djokovic. The Djokovic of two or three years ago never loses to Yuri Vesely. And I'm, you're gonna, I'm making this prediction here on Morton Moneyball. I will tweet it out at W Moneyball after the show. We're now going to start seeing where Djokovic is going to start losing some matches that he never would have before because the 30, almost 35-year-old Djokovic is not the same as the 28-year-old one. This is one of Eric's pet theories about aging in sports. You get more, you get more bimodality. You get some of those moments where you're just as good as you ever were, but not all the moments are that way. Interesting. All right. Listen, let's talk about some other sports. Shane. I see a score here that looks like a football score. I don't yeah, understand what happened. Yeah, Toronto yeah, yeah. No, so ten goals, seventeen what? goals, seventeen goals. So the the Maple Leafs and Red Wings, classic original six rivalry, by the way, yeah. uh, played played recently, and the game ended up ten seven, which is of course not your typical hockey game. It's in fact the most game uh, goal. I think it's the most goals in a game since like two thousand and eleven. Um, and the actual kind of that's not even the craziest part of this is that the Toronto Maple Leafs scored 10 goals, not a single power play the entire game. They didn't have a power play or there was no power play goals. They both. <laughs> I mean, one, one, <laughs> one kind of a, one kind of implies the other, but no, they did not have a single. Let me power ask you a play. question. Um, I would assume had this, had it not been a close ish game, I don't know what the score path was, but like if the Red Wings were up nine to nothing, like or even seven to nothing. Yeah. You're not going to see them pouring on more goals. They'll just play back defensively. Is the fact is the impressive part here not just that Maple Leafs scored ten, but there were seventeen total, which means it was it must have been a relatively close game, so that both teams continue to have an incentive to score. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think you. I mean, similar to kind of like you know, I mean that that you know the very high scoring football games, you know, like that crazy uh, Chiefs. Rams game from a couple years ago where it ended up like 54 51 obviously no very few times does that you know would you get that kind of high scoring if it wasn't kind of competitive throughout um and so no I agree that's the kind of situation here I just think it's also notable that usually in very highly competitive games there are you know because the teams are playing very intensely there typically are more penalties and more of the kind of scoring kind of happens via the power play I mean I think it's something like 20 to 25 percent of goals in general are scored on the power play so to have like this like 10 goal barrage by the Maple right. Leafs and have right. none of them on the power play is, is, is kind of notable beyond just the fact that he, 17 goals in one game is clearly notable of its own right. Well, also notable, your hometown Calgary yeah. Flames had a winning streak. No, right? I mean, I have to mention the Calgary Flames. You know, we were, you know I, I got all hyped about them in the fall because they started off very hot. Um, they were kind of leading the Pacific for a little bit there, and then they faded. Now they're back. They've won 14 of their last 17. And this is actually kind of coming at the tail end. And, you know, they had so many kind of postponements and cancellations in kind of December, January due to COVID. But since then, they've been on a run that's got them back on top of the Pacific. Now they're probably, you know, fifth or sixth in the entire league in terms of record and kind of probability in the postseason. Uh, so let me to, just ask you a question, Shane. Just, yeah. just I- I'm looking at the F- Flames record here. 
and let's even eliminate the 14 out of 17, even before then, they were winning roughly 60% of their games. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a 17-game span, we'd expect them to win an expectation in their old record. They'd win about 10 of them. So what struck your eye? Like, was, is 14-3 and three that surprising for a team that wins 60% of their games to begin with? I mean, I think, uh, I mean, yes, in the sense that I, I think probably what kind of piled up is they, they did have a 10 to 11 game win streak in there. And now they're like in the nine and one range. So I think it's more just, I, they're, they're, they're obviously a very streaky team. And we were kind of seeing that kind of like, you know, taking the step back about their season at the higher level. So I think, you know, I mean, I'm kind of riding the hot streak right now and very excited about it. I don't necessarily expect to continue, but I mean, honestly, they weren't, I, I think it's even notable that if they cool off and just kind of go back to that 60% pace, that is definitely higher than we had them predicted at prior to the season. I mean, they, they, they were not supposed to play kind of, you know, that 60% pace or 65% pace is, is something that the good teams in the NHL do. And I don't think most people had the Calgary flames as one of those really good teams. Well, if Colorado continues to play 60% for the rest of the season, nobody bats an eyelash. If Calgary keeps it up, that, that'll be something. Let me follow it up with a follow-up question. You mentioned about their hot streak. I, let's imagine you could pick one of two teams going into the playoffs. Both teams have the identical record, okay? So any strength model would suggest they potentially have the same. But one team, I'll use my term, has clumpy behavior, meaning they go on win streaks. The other doesn't. Wouldn't you rather have the team that has a demonstrated ability to go on win streaks? Because that's what it takes. Like if both teams win 60% of their games, but one team every five games goes three and two, three and two, three and two, a total regular pattern. Another team might have a 10 game stretch where they go nine and one, but then they go four and six the other direction. I'd rather have the nine and one, four and six. Wouldn't you, or am I thinking about it wrong? No, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I guess you could have, there certainly are counter arguments, but I agree. I mean, I think, or even more generally, I think if, if you're talking about an, a, a team that is very consistent versus very high variance, I think you kind of want that variance in the playoff. Unless in the playoffs you in general. Unless you'd have consistency at a very high level. If they're always yes, not. So right. I, I, I equated, okay, remember, I equated the two teams yeah. have the same number of wins. So I was trying to co-vary that part out, but yeah. I, I no, think I agree right. with you. I'd like the high variance. Well, yeah, speaking, I, speaking of high variance, we had something happen this past weekend that was super interesting in NCAA basketball. So we're, this is, this is, we're coming up on the end of the regular season. In fact, Coach K is playing his last game at Cameron uh, this, this coming Saturday. We'll move into the conference tournament the following week. And then we'll get March Madness underway. But on Saturday, this I don't know, was it the top six or top seven teams? Like top every, six, but seven out of ten, but the top six. Top six teams, one, two, three, four, five, six, all went down on the same day. I mean, so one, it's going to happen eventually. But does that tell us something about parity or the or the the, the uncertainty going into the tournament? Because my first reaction was, giddy up, this is going to be a fun March Madness. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think a couple things. The first thing I thought about was, it's definitely never happened before. As a matter of fact, one neat statistic that was put up on this on various websites and screens were how many teams is the top team lost, the top two, top three, top four, top five, top six. This is the first time ever the top six have lost. Okay. Um, I was even wondering, though, how many times have they all played on the same day? So I was just wondering, like, should I be that impressed? Because like, that one, I understand I should be. But is that like one out of 10, one out of 20? I mean, that's the other thing I was thinking about. The other it's thing I was thinking about is, let's say each of them was a 90% chance to win the game. Well, then, lost, it's 0.1 to the sixth, which is one in 100, one in 10,000, 
Oh, no, we're at a very small number. We're at about one in a million. Yeah, it's like if it's if it's point nine, point one each of those games, it wasn't. But let's just say it was. You're talking about one in the million. You're talking one in a couple hundred thousand. That is a very rare event, no matter how you look at it. Well, one of the interesting features as a result was that the top two teams didn't change in the rankings. Right. So you normally would expect, you know, you don't get to number one. But the other thing that happens and has happened certainly this season is that the, you know, some teams come in at the top of the rankings. Gonzaga starts number one and then they lose ultimately. And so they roll out and somebody else becomes number one. Then they lose and they roll out. And then eventually the teams that were there in the beginning emerge back at the top. And here we are back with Gonzaga. And this time when they lose, they don't get rolled out. I want to take a look real quickly at the brackets, forecasted brackets. So there's a website called the Bracket Matrix, and they just aggregate people's forecasts, like uh, more than 100 of these brackets, to give you some sense of how things are shaping up. And right now they're showing on the on the one line, Gonzaga, Arizona, Kansas, and Baylor, so two big 12 teams. And on the two line, Auburn, Kentucky, Duke, and Purdue. And on the three-line, Tech, Villanova, Tennessee, Wisconsin. And then on the fours, Providence, Illinois, UCLA, Connecticut. An interesting feature is that the, that the rankings committee themselves now reveal who their current top 16 is periodically. Right. They're giving us those teams. But it's been fun to watch a strong Big 12. And Kansas and Baylor just played a heck of a game on Saturday. They probably they could very well end up in the Big 12 championships. Um, anyway, getting slowly pulled nice in. Nice Baylor-Texas game last night, though. I know, sorry, no, Texas nice. lost, but it was nice. a well-played game by both teams. I'm saying that's but, a good – those are two good teams that could do damage in the tournament. It was well-played until, I don't know, the last four or five minutes. Texas yeah, and then Baylor took Texas over. doesn't have any shooters. I mean, if you can't make shots, you're not going to win basketball games. But notably about that game, Eric, I'm sure you, you picked up on this. This was the last game in the Frank Irwin Center. That stadium, I remember when they built it in the mid-'70s, the Superdrum, and there have been a lot of events there. No one really likes it as a playing arena. And they're building, UT is building on campus a new arena that's going to be small by design, a smaller stadium for more intimate, intense basketball experience, which should be fun. But that was the last, last night was the last of the Irwin Center games. Um, all right, fellas, that has been three quarters. We've got a fun interview coming up. NBA, we're going to go deep on NBA as we roll into um, basketball season, both in the pros and the colleges in the fourth quarter. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to Q4. Q4 has become our interview segment in the last two years. Since we've been on Zoom, time of pandemic, we've been using Q4 to talk to various people around the world. We are delighted to welcome onto the show for the first time, Ben Dowsett. Ben is a writer at 538. He's also a videographer, does some cool YouTube stuff explaining basketball. He's based in Salt Lake City. I think he does some things around the jazz in particular, but you can find his work on the NBA, all kinds of places. ESPN, GQ, The Athletic. We're lucky to have him. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's an honor. Absolutely, Ben. Listen, uh, we, we're, we're football guys. I hate to say it. We're, we're, we like sports in general, but we all really kind of bleed for football. And so as that sport fades away, we turn our eyes to new sports and we look to people like you to get us up to speed. Eric is sitting over there, season ticket holder of the Sixers. He probably doesn't need to be brought up to speed, but the rest of us do on what's going on in the NBA this season. And we thought you'd be a good person to do that with. One, first, can you just explain to a very casual basketball fan like me how it is that the Jazz are so good? Like last year, they're one of the top performing teams. And I mean, 
they hadn't really been good. I think, you know, after Malone and Stockton were gone, weren't they kind of like not supposed to be good anymore? And then they're one of the best teams. Now, look, I know I'm an idiot, but just explain to me real quickly why the Jazz are so good. So, yeah, the Jazz did go through. It's all cyclical, right, in sports as far as, you know, some teams can be good for a while. Then you go through the cycle of downturn, unless you're the San Antonio Spurs. that <laughs> uh, They're the exception there. But so for an, uh, a while, the Jazz were not great after Stockton and Malone left. And then they had a bit of a resurgence in the late 2000s with the Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer, Andre Kirilenko teams. For those that are, you know, real basketball nerds, they were good, but not great in those teams. I think they made the conference finals once, never made the finals. I don't know that they were ever truly a threat to win the championship, but they were good. They were a good team. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after that, a few more dark years, Jerry Sloan obviously left the franchise. Darren Williams was traded. And then uh, a guy named Dennis Lindsay came to the jazz who for uh, a number of years was their GM and then was eventually uh, elevated to vice president. He just recently resigned last off season, uh, ceding the reins to a new person, but he kicked off probably the most successful quote unquote rebuild in the history of the jazz franchise in particular. Mm -hmm. And frankly, one of the more successful in recent NBA history in that the jazz only bottomed out for one year. Some of the, yeah, uh, Eric as a Sixers fan certainly well knows about this, that for some teams, the traditional model that, or the, you know, the model that Hinky in, in Philadelphia originally uh, uh, brought up was you're bad for multiple years. And you are in fact, intentionally bad with the goal of picking as high as possible for multiple consecutive drafts. And in fact, right now we're seeing the fruits of that for Philadelphia with Joel Embiid, one of those players who they picked leading potentially leading them to an MVP season and possibly a number one overall seed in the conference. Mm-hmm. The jazz only had to bottom out for one year. They had the fifth overall pick in, I want to say 2013, it might've been 2014. I could be wrong there. But beyond that, they were able to make good moves around the fringes. They drafted Rudy Gobert 27th overall. He's become a three-time defensive player of the year winner. Mm-hmm. When you hit on a guy like that at the 27th overall pick, which by the way, they moved, they paid cash to move up just to make that pick because they okay. had identified Rudy. There was that. There was they drafted Donovan Mitchell with the 13th overall pick a few years ago. Another guy who has greatly exceeded his draft role. They have found unheralded free uh excuse me uh uh, either undrafted or unheralded free agents for instance joe ingles sadly just got injured and actually just had to be traded from the jazz but played for them for the last seven years he was signed from them after being cut by the clippers during training camp in 2014 the rest Mm -hmm. of the league didn't really know about him royce o'neill was undrafted for the jazz plays a central role as a starter for their team now. I I won't drone on any further, but essentially it's a successful culmination of the rebuild that was started by Dennis Lindsay. They have a couple star or even pseudo superstar level players in Mitchell and Gobert, but the fact that they can succeed without having a LeBron James or a Giannis Antetokounmpo, one of those true top level superstars, speaks to the cumulative rebuild and the quality of it. How much credit do you close followers give uh, Quinn Snyder? You have a nice piece in on 538 in the last few months on um, developing players and some love to Snyder in that both selecting people, but also developing them. The longer they're in the system, they seem to do better. He's got a system. There's something to be said for longevity. Um, So I'm curious what credit is given to the head coach there. A huge amount that would beyond the the front office and the rebuilding moves. I think that would and of course the players who are the ones that make it happen on the court. I think that would be the second largest area of credit. Quinn has 
just an enormous amount of cachet with this team and and with frankly very good reason his developmental track record you alluded to the piece i had in 538 from earlier in the year is virtually unmatched the in fact multiple of his assistants have ended up being poached away by other teams for their uh johnny bryant for instance is the lead assistant for tom thibodeau now with the new york knicks there are several other examples of that Uh happening Quinn deserves an enormous amount of credit. And frankly, he himself also plays a role now with the front office. He's not the GM or anything, but he absolutely has a voice there and and has earned that voice. Real quickly, you talk about the front office. I'm curious, what has been the buzz with Danny Ainge? Your owner talked Danny Ainge to come out of retirement. They're all vacationing in the Bahamas or whatever the story was. And Ainge, who did so well, it seems, with the Celtics, supposed to like, you know, go off and play for a few years. Now he's going to help run the jazz. What's what's the reaction among jazz fans for that? And what what have been the earlier? It's too probably too early to have early returns, but have there been any early returns? I would say so. First of all, wasn't entirely shocking for jazz folks. Uh, the connections mm-hmm. between Danny and Utah are well known. A lot his fa- he's had family here for years. Uh, he's been around here a lot, and of course, it's it was well known as soon as Ryan Smith purchased the Jazz it's well known that he's friends with Ryan Smith and this was not a shock to anyone. Um, That said, I think Danny from the, what I've heard and the reporting I've done generally, Danny has eased himself into this role. For instance, Justin Zanuck remains as the jazz's general manager. He's sort of the boss of day-to-day operations since Dennis Lindsay resigned over last off season. Justin is enormously capable, has immense respect around the league. And as far as a day-to-day and even, even as far as you know, the trade deadline that just ended, I think Justin was primarily the guy running point on that. While Ainge is taking more of a 10,000 foot view, he's handling, he has great relationships in the league, which certainly helps. Now, a lot of the word is that over the next few months, and especially if things don't go well for the Jazz here in the playoffs, if they don't, you know, at least advance to the second round, if not the conference finals or further and have a, you know, an impressive showing this year in the playoffs. I tend to think you'll see Danny's influence more uh, because there will be more of an impetus to make changes to this roster, which he'll be heavily involved in. Okay. So Ben, um, could you give us a sense since we're an analytics show, how analytically oriented are the jazz thought of in the NBA? And if it's not, then, you know, is it for just fortuitous that they were able to, because I was just looking at their rosters. You were speaking. I know maybe, 80% of the players on most NBA teams. I think I know every player on the jazz and it's not because I'm a Utah jazz fan. I've just heard of all of these players. What would you, how would you explain their success? And secondly, let's say they do have to rebuild. If they're not analytically driven, how confident are you that they can have another build up or maybe the last one was just luck. That's, that's actually a very interesting question. I'm glad you asked Eric. And it's interesting because I think if you asked around the league, just, you know, let's say you surveyed, 30 people, 15 of whom are analytics people and 15 of whom are just, you know, NBA people, just, you know, general managers and whatnot. I think you would hear the Jazz are in the, at minimum, in the upper half in terms of their usage and implementation of analytics. If not, I think some would probably tell you they're among the most uh, devoted users of such things. However, if you were to look at the staff of analytics for the Jazz compared to other teams in the NBA, it's significantly smaller than the average. The Jazz have ooh, effectively like one and a half full-time employees right now for the in there who are only based on analytics. Now that's a little uh, misleading. Uh, Sergio, Sergi, excuse me, Oliva is a is who you may know actually, Eric, from because he was previously with the Sixers, uh, is an assistant coach, but who also has a heavy background in analytics and the use of numbers. So he doesn't technically count when you're counting those analytics staffer numbers. But there are teams 
in the NBA who have analytics staffs numbering close to 10, 12 people in some cases. For the Jazz, for at least from a personnel standpoint, their investment is not as large as some other teams. But as you mentioned, Eric, you can look at the style of play that they play. I can tell you for a fact that Quinn Snyder himself is very interested in the analytical side of things and absolutely infuses it into his coaching and the way that the Jazz play. But at the same time, their actual investment into it, I, I don't know this for sure. And this is the kind of thing that it can be tougher to find in terms of, you know, what's the yearly investment actually being put into it or that sort of thing. But in, from a staff standpoint, they have one of the smaller staffs, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess just, just to follow up on that, I kind of, I mean, it was really intriguing that the kind of distinction you made, like kind of when talking about some of these diamonds in the rough that they've been able to kind of uh, find, um, how much of that is, you know, they're savvy to kind of recognize misappraised talent at the time of a draft versus actually just sort of the, the, the developmental part of pro- the process and, and how much analytics kind of feeds into those. You could imagine a lot of teams with gigantic staffs uh, perhaps being overly focused on kind of finding sort of like finding kind of, you know, arbitrage in terms of actual talent misappraisal and not necessarily giving as much attention to the developmental side. So I don't know if you can kind of comment on that, uh, th- those kind of two parallel ways of, of, of kind of, uh, you know, uh, improving your team. Yeah. And maybe even tangentially, Shane, tell me if this kind of relates to what you're talking about, but also the uh, infusing of the analytics department with other parts of basketball operations is a huge part of this. Um, I I think, for instance, I think that's actually something that's been a major emphasis for the Jazz. I mentioned uh, Sergi, the assistant coach, that he was hired last season. Uh, I believe that's been a big emphasis. There has been a feeling among some in the Jazz among recent years that Perhaps there's too more of a disconnect than there should be between various departments. So there's the analytics guys, and then there's the, you know, the basketball lifers, the 40-year basketball guys. And then there's a few people that kind mm-hmm. of put their foot into both, but there's not enough, or at least I, I hear sometimes that there are concerns about whether there was enough integration. And I know that that's been a major effort. As far as speaking to the identification of players and to, you know, the various, you know, when they selected Rudy and Donovan at, at positions that are, they have clearly outpaced in the draft or the free agents who they've acquired that other teams weren't as interested in those kinds of things. I would tend to, without, of course, both elements are clearly involved. And from the developmental standpoint, analytics are a huge part of the way the jazz develop their players. They lean heavily on second spectrum uh, data in terms of what they give to their players and what they tell their players in terms of how to improve and things like that. Heavy video work, that sort of stuff. In terms of the actual identification, I would lean a little more toward the observable, the, the subjective, if you will, not only Lindsay, but Zanuck, who I already mentioned, Walt Perrin is another guy. He actually is another who has been poached from the Jazz front office. He's now with the Knicks, used to be with the Jazz. He's well known around the league for his just the guy just scouts an unbelievable number of games. He spends four months a year over in Europe scouting basketball. That's a huge part of it. And there's even as we move forward in this day of analytics, which are an absolutely huge deal across every level of the NBA, it is still important to remember that those those areas do have value, particularly in you know, identifying the talent, because who knows if the analytics are great in the Greek B league or something like that, that, that kind of stuff starts with your ability to visually identify that talent and then apply the relevant data afterwards. A couple of things you said that really resonate with me. One is the, the, how 
analytics needs to be integrated with the rest of the organization. And I, the longer I've worked in this space, the more I've come to believe that it is about culture, essentially, and breaking down those identities and those barriers. And that sounds so soft and wishy-washy, but it's absolutely vital if you're going to this, what they're trying to do is so hard and there's so much uncertainty. You need everybody from as many different views as possible contributing. And if you build up these silos, then you're just really handicapping yourself. The, the other thing you said is a newer revelation for me, and that is how, how little a role the draft plays in personnel acquisition in the NBA. I mean, it's only a couple guys a year. And, and you might think, well, then why are they spending all this time scouting? Well, they've got, a, they've got pro personnel as well. They've got guys in other leagues. You've got a lot of different ways to acquire players beyond just the traditional NBA draft. And so the scouting you're talking about, it does play a bigger role than I think many people appreciate. Listen, you got a couple of articles that we got to hear a little bit more about. We've talked about Gobert already, but you wrote this piece about a month ago, uh, again, 538, on three different type of defensive players in the NBA. And there's a few things in here that are really interesting to me. And I think take us to really kind of the heart of sports analytics these days, but you start out by saying, look, traditionally it was the great defensive players were always the big guy, like the Alonzo mornings, the Bill Russell. Why not give some tribute to the Utah jazz Mark Eaton from I my day. He, you couldn't find that the problem was I wanted to be able to quantify it at the start with some specific runs of dominance from those teams who had those defenders. It wasn't quite as, it didn't fit quite as well for you <laughs> wanted to, but it didn't fit quite as well. Well, you, you say that Gilbert pops on the defensive standing, defending defensive uh, uh, rankings. And it's, it's interesting even just to look at the defensive rankings, because you use three different systems. They all have different weights on different issues and they rank, guys quite differently in some cases, but it's nice to have this kind of ensemble who knows what's right. But by the time you've ensembled all three, you get a pretty good sense of it. But then you take us deep into Gobert's game and you talk about, well, he protects the rim as well as anybody. And he's, you know, people who go up against him this year is like below 50% or some crazy thing. But then the really interesting bit was he denies opportunities at the rim. And this really jumps out to me because this is a this is a, a drum I beat a lot on this show about sports analytics is that we're that has to we have to get to this place where we show the impact players have on the games kind of away from the box scores because we're our stats right now the the current approach is like well we really understand the situations really well so we know when a guy is at the rim going against Gobert so we can say real precisely how he defends at the rim but. What if his presence changes how often people come to the rim? That's a huge contribution because, as you say in the article, those shots at the rim are the most valuable shots anywhere on the court. And so if he denies people getting in there or taking shots from there, then that's a huge contribution. That's the kind of thing we need to be doing more in sports analytics. And you take us deeply into that. And I think it's a beautiful little illustration. And, by the way, you do it with the video so it's this nice, it's this nice integration. Your work is this nice integration of the video videography with this advanced analytics. And so I want to hear a little bit more from you on how you got to that and what you make of it and where, where you think we are in sports analytics and like really in NBA, in basketball analytics and really understanding the game because we're advanced so far, but what do we have yet in front of us to really get at things like that? Another great question. You guys have great questions. This is fantastic. Um, I saw a few things that you kind of hit on there. 
one is that just to to your first point, kind of that is a very common line among folks in NBA analytics, which, by the way, I can only claim to be adjacent to. I am not a uh, an anal- I could not work for an NBA team in analytics. I know those people and they're kind enough to speak to me. And I think I have the knowledge levels to write about these things, but don't have a programming background or so I don't want to miss. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't misrepresenting myself uh, to any of your readers. But a common line you will hear from those folks who are much smarter than me, for the most part, is it's easy to measure stuff that happens. It's not easy to measure stuff that doesn't happen. That And that's essentially what you're getting at with that. And the deterrence is the term that I always like to use for Gobert and for several other players, although he has this, the staunchest numbers in terms of that. And I talk about numbers and I'll shout out a particular site. If there are listeners here who are looking for uh, further knowledge in the basketball realm, particularly from a statistics and analytical side, Cleaning the Glass. It's cleaningtheglass.com. It's run by Ben Falco. I believe you guys have had. Philadelphia, Philadelphia guy. Yep, exactly. Um, that this site is unbelievable for a number of things. And one of these is the ability to view a team's opponent shot profile based on whether a certain player was on the floor or off the floor. Mm -hmm. So we can view how often does the opponent get to the rim when Rudy Gobert is on the floor compared to when he's off it. And as you noted, and as I expressed in the piece, every single year of Gobert's career, everyone without exception, And that's through, he's had, I think, five or six different backup centers in that time. So, of course, on and off court data is, of course, influenced by the player who backs you up. We have to keep that in mind. But every year, no matter who his backup center is, whether it's Hassan Whiteside this year, Derek Favors the last couple of years, Tony Bradley a few years ago, the impact of his presence on the court is opponents shoot less at the rim and tend to shoot much more for the from the far less efficient mid-range areas, which are, of course, mm-hmm. on the whole, where the Jazz would like their opponents taking their shots when they take them. Mm-hmm. Speaking more to your, your kind of broader point about this, and, and you mentioned, and thank you for doing so, kind of the infusion of video that I like to go with along with these numbers. My view on this is really simple. All of this is information. Video is information. Data is information. We're taking in this game and receiving as much information as we can. Our ability to synthesize and understand that information across multiple mediums is what's most important for our understanding of the game. So when I cite a number, I want that number to be able to connect to something that's actually going on in the basketball game, partially for reader interest as much as anything. Reader's eyes are going to gloss over if you're just just a paragraph of numbers and over and over again. Being able to connect that with folks, because there's lots of folks who say, sure, I want to understand what's happening in this basketball game that I'm watching, but I don't want to, I don't want to read a spreadsheet. You know, Kevin Durant's famous argument on Twitter is who wants to watch basketball while reading a spreadsheet. And that's very (laughs) true for lots of people, but you can help them understand just a little bit about what's happening. And then you show them visual examples of what you're talking about and help their brain say, make that connection of, okay, I understand how this metric that's being cited specifically speaks to what's happening on the floor in front of me. My goal is to make that as simple and as conducive as possible for readers. It's, it's, it's awesome. And we as analysts need to learn from, from you guys. And, I, and again, let's break down the identities. Let's break down the barriers. Analysts need to be using video more. You are, are a videographer, but you're obviously fluent in the analytics. I want to ask you about the next step though. And that is, all right, can you go from video to numbers? So we're talking about this deterrence thing. And reading you talk about Gobert's deterrence and the concept of deterrence in general and seeing your examples, it made me think about Brian Burke's work at ESPN on pass blocking win rates. 
And so they, this is this thing that's, you know, become a huge deal in the NFL just in the last 20, whatever, 12 months, 16 months. And they've quantified this thing that people have talked about, but they've automated it because they're coding video to know whether a guy gets by another guy. And I wonder how much of that's going on in the NBA, because it feels like the illustrations you're giving could be codified so that something like deterrence could be programmed up and become a statistic in some way. And I, and I don't know NBA and the state of it enough to know whether that kind of thing is going on, but Brian is just gives us such a nice illustration of that. And in order to do that, he was working like, you know, getting a lot of coaching from guys with deep NFL experience in order to get it right. But it feels like the natural next step to go from what you're talking about it now, now Ben, you're just saying about you know, using videos, but now, now let's use that kind of knowledge in those videos to, to improve the statistics. Just, just, just to follow up on Cade's point, exactly the question, do you see a world, uh, Ben, where you know, you're the person that's helping a supervised learning AI engine to code video that can score this stuff in mass scale? Or do you see more of a pro football focus model where you know, a bunch of experts like yourself are capturing video, watching video, and that's done on scale? Which of these two, are, or is that a false dichotomy? Or how much, and how much of it is already going on? In yeah. The- so not, first of all, yes, it's already going on and not a false dichotomy at all. Those are two. And, but I also should just clarify one more time. If anyone was doing that coding, it would not be me. I'm, I'm not the one who has the writer, <laughs> but I know the guys who do, and I have some, so, uh, and it's a very good question. So let me start with what's uh, what we already have. What we already have are, there are, there's one major thing within each of those realms within the automated tracking realm. I've mentioned them before is second spectrum. They are the current partner of the NBA. It used to be sport view when they first launched, then they, that's a different company run by stats LLC. Then after just a couple of years with them, the NBA switched to second spectrum, second spectrum utilizes six rafter cameras that are placed in all 29 NBA arenas, uh, both the Lakers and Clippers playing staples. That's why it's only 29. They, that data is it's 25 times per second. It's collected on the torsos of the players and the basketball. Uh, you can naturally under think of what some of the limitations there might be. If it's only tracking torsos, you can't track arms, can't track how high a player is jumping, can't track things like that. But it does a very good job of tracking essentially in a diagram form. What it spits out is a diagram of dots moving around a screen plus the ball that from that you can derive numerous insights. Now, many NBA teams simply receive the raw XYZ data from Second Spectrum and use their own in-house experts to synthesize and utilize it in all their own ways. I shouldn't say many. Actually, it's only a few NBA teams that really do that and do a great job of it because the there's a the amount of data is frankly yeah. massive and it's not it's a challenge. Then the flip side and then there's also a public not public, excuse me, a team client called Eagle that Second Spectrum maintains, which has many of their own insights on there. So for instance, you can check pick and rolls is one major area you can look at and you can drill down into incredible detail. So I want to know when Donovan Mitchell is the ball handler and Rudy Gobert is the big man in the pick and roll and the defense is playing this particular type of defense, I want to know what the Jazz's efficiency on all those plays is. I can find that from that sort of a thing. The Insights there are broad and wide ranging Um, and second spectrum in this form of tracking technology has been around for about 10 years now in the NBA. 
The other side of that, and you talked about sort of just observable tracking, there's a company called Synergy Sports that's also well-known within the NBA. And it's more, it's more of that kind of a thing where games are individually watched by people, basketball experts in most cases, and they are categorizing things it's down similar lines. It's mostly based on play types, you know, pick and rolls, post-ups, transition play, isolations, the various different types of plays. I will say generally the tracking data is at least in my experience is more robust. It's more, you're, you're more prone to human error, of course, within a system like synergy and they only do track some limited areas, but for a number of teams and areas, and actually particularly for the college basketball realm, because second spectrum is at least as far as I know, not in college right now, synergy can be very valuable. However, the future of this is possibly very, very exciting. And uh, I can actually plug myself just a little bit here. The most recent article just before that one that we were talking about before, about the uh, three defensive archetypes in the NBA right now, is titled The New Technology That May Upend How We Watch Basketball. Mm -hmm. Recently, back in August, the WNBA, which is very close with the NBA in terms of lots of these technological advancements and things like that, pioneered the use of Hawkeye camera tracking, which some folks may know from tennis, uh, yep. it's most well known for that combination of that with Connexon, which is a company primarily based in Europe, which does wearable tracking. And that's mm -hmm. the, that's the real Holy grail in the end is the ability to combine wearable tracking with that kind of video, the insights they were able to draw from one game. They had over half, I believe over half of or excuse me, 50,000 data points, or might, it might've been half a million. I'd have to go back and check from that single game. The potential for that sort of tech, because these Hawkeye cameras, rather than just being positioned in the rafters, like the second spectrum cameras I mentioned, they're positioned at dynamic angles throughout the arena. They offer the potential for much more insight than second spectrum allows from precise arm length and jump distance. So instead of with second spectrum, a good example here with second spectrum, I can say, I want to know what a player's shooting percentage is based on his closest defender when, you know, defender six feet away, defender eight feet away, whatever. That's only based on the defender's torso. As I mentioned, there's a huge difference in some players. If we're talking about Rudy Gobert's torso versus Trey Young's torso, Rudy Gobert's got really long arms. Trey Young doesn't. Those, but the second spectrum tracking data would input those in the exact same way if they were the same distance away from the player. This newer type of tracking, which again was just experimented with, and there are still ongoing talks about it, whether it may become a long-term thing, that could give us so much more. It could give us specifically how close was the player's hand to the ball as it was released? How high did the contesting player jump on for this shot? It could go into numerous other areas. Did this ball go out of bounds? It could automate those kinds of calls. It could automate goaltending for referees in game, like in real time. I'll stop talking now because I've rambled for a bit, but that's the, this is the, we're on the precipice of this kind of a future for the, I think for the NBA and for other sports. And it's really, really exciting, honestly. It, it is exciting. And we had uh, an NBA exec on a few weeks ago to talk about some of the technology that they're trying to advance. And they talked about automating some of these referee decisions and, and then assisting them with other ones as an example, but I, I, reading that article, but also you had an article about referee uh, tracking with the most recent articles you've written are been on referee tracking. Both of those speak to me about how advanced the NBA is, how creative, innovative, collaborative the NBA is, especially in contrast to some other professional sports leagues. One question about the WNBA exhibition 
I don't understand the benefit of the tracking if you've got really good optical. So you've got the Hawkeye in there and they're able to do the, the full, you know, body stuff. I would think you, and optical is only going to get better and better and better as processing gets better. I would think that the tracking only helps in like, I don't know, like whenever they're in a scrum, it helps you know where things are that maybe optical can't do. But if I were pitting these two technologies, I've thought this for the last couple of years, the long-term bet would be on optical, I would think, because with comp, comp, computer vision or whatever they're calling it, you just run a video and every year that goes by, we do better and better at pulling all these data out of just a video feed. Yeah, those are incredible. Like you can look at in other sports, even like Sport Logic is a company that does that in hockey. I don't know if you guys have heard of them. And, and I think other sports as well, that kind of thing is becoming more popular. I agree with you that, and frankly, what I'm about to say might be obsolete in like two years because you're right. The video capture technology is so good and getting so much better that in literally in two or three years, this could be, this could all change. But for now, from what I understand, the gold standard is the combination of the two because the wearable tracking allows for certain little miniature things that the, that the optical isn't as good at like player load, directional changes, um, momentum, yeah torque like the you know g's okay. or, you know those kinds of things that i don't think the opticals and again i'm not quite the level of tech expert to d- don't jump into the weeds and give you every detail there but from yeah. what what i understand that's the difference and as you mentioned i mean teams use that stuff in practice all the time and across sports to to, to measure those kinds of things listen there's a ton of data there and we, we and we've known that nba has been working with this but it's interesting to me how there haven't been as many crisp statistics emerge from all those data yet. Now, maybe we'll get there eventually. But again, back to Brian's work with with NFL, or maybe the NFL in general, we have had a few things just kind of emerge from the soup, the soup, this big, complicated soup of tracking data. Some real crisp statistics have come out. And so back to the Gobert thing, I'd be curious to know something real simple, like what's the probability a guy puts up a shot whenever another player, whenever a player, a specific player, is within some vicinity, like five foot or whatever. Like if I'm on the NBA court, it's not going to make one bit of difference whether I'm next to a guy or not and whether he's going to get a shot off. But Gobert, like nobody puts shots up against him because they don't, because of his reputation, how good he is. So just a real simple stat, like automate this thing where it says, if this guy is within five feet or whatever, I mean, you know, you could imagine a full gradient, but something like if this guy's within five feet, you were showing videos where he's like practically at the foul line but he's able to move so much that people are still like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to turn around. So like, I just like to know that probability a guy puts up a shot. If this guy's within a certain distance, something like that. I think that's basically broadly doable right now using the raw XYZ data from the second spectrum client. If you have mm-hmm. a data scientist who is capable of drawing that data out in the proper ways, they could find that they could, it wouldn't be well, perfect I, because sorry, go ahead. No, I, so good, but so why haven't they? And I and I wonder. We give Michael Lopez at the NFL a lot of love for his um, democratization of NFL data, and there's been a kind of kind of a community hacking, a community of thousands hacking NFL data that's helped some of these stats emerge. And maybe this is one way in which the NFL is ahead of the NBA. And how much democratization has there been of all these of all this fantastic NBA data? I think you're right. That I'm I'm not as in tune with the NBA, but just from the, or excuse me, with the NFL, but just from the basics that I've heard, I tend to think you're right from the democratization standpoint. The, 
I would agree with you in general. I think the NBA could do more here. For instance, you know, second spectrum data used to be extremely hard to access for anyone who didn't have, who wasn't with an NBA team. Even that Eagle client that I was mentioning, not just the raw XYZ, just the a bit now it, there's lots of media members that have access. I have access for instance, for instance, like <laughs> I, I can look at it, but it's not okay. public. I think yeah. it would be cool to make that data public. Now you, I do think you may in some cases get into questions of rights and collective bargaining yeah. in terms of, which yeah. I know the, the one thing that we, and this even touches on, I was just talking about that new technology we could see in the next, whatever period of time in the NBA, that's a hurdle there is collective bargaining and the nba has an incredibly strong players association well but they also have the best labor relations in major sports and so if anybody's going to get it done those guys will probably get it done but that's a, absolutely a huge issue for them look we've been we've kept you too long but i want i gotta ask you one thing and i got i want to hear you and eric on this daryl Morey had to have james harden for whatever reason he had to have him how much is it going to pay off what's your take on what the sixers are going to do from here on the early returns. First couple of games look great. Eric, what do you think? Ben, what do you think? What do you think from the Sixers this year? Well, I'll go briefly. So let me say where it'll help. Um, I've always said, and Ben doesn't know this necessarily, but you can follow us on W at W Moneyball. I've always said when the best player on your team is a big man, the problem you have is that you can't finish games because you can. I, by the way, I grew up in, in New York City. Patrick Ewing was the best player on the team. You can't get Patrick Ewing the ball with enough time on the clock to make him effective in whatever he's going to do. Joel Embiid is no different. So James Harden, is, just like Jimmy Butler did a few years ago, we hope is going to help the Sixers in the last four to five minutes of a game. The problem I have with uh, James Harden is he's not that his player efficiency rating is not that great. Um, the more, the better, the more shots he takes, the less shots Tobias Harris, by the way, who we have given like $150 million to the more shots Harden takes, the less Tobias Harris takes. So I'm concerned about the overall makeup of the team. I think this team gets maybe to the Eastern conference finals, maybe, but they're not better than that. I don't see them as the best team in the NBA, even with Harden, but I will say the following Simmons wasn't going to play for the Sixers anymore. Therefore, you got rid of him, Seth Curry. Okay, fine. You got rid of Andre Drummond and a couple of worthless picks, and you got James Harden. So I like the trade. I just don't. I still don't think they're good enough. But I'd love to hear your thoughts, Ben. Absolutely. And by the way, just for reference, I don't mind continuing further if you guys want. I, if I, if I need to get off, that's fine. But I'm really enjoying this. So if you wanted to go further, I'm happy to after this. But um, so a few things there. One, don't use per. Uh, I love you, John Hollinger. He's John Hollinger is a friend of mine, and he's the guy who invented PER. Even he would say, probably don't use PER that much these days. It's really it's a player efficiency rating. Correct. Player efficiency rate. Only, or I should restate that. Only use it for the offensive side of the ball. It's very it's pretty Fair enough. good yep. on the offensive side of the ball and tells you basically nothing about the other side. Uh I agree with a lot of what you just said there. And to advance it a little, Eric, I would say. I think the Harden move, and particularly with the under the guise of replacing a player in Simmons who simply was going to give you zero this entire year, it absolutely ups their ceiling. Do I would I if I was forced to pick how far do the Sixers go? I would probably say something like what you did, like they they probably make the second or third round. Depends on the opponent, could be close. However, I think that their ceiling now includes they could win the championship. I don't think they're the favorite. They oh. wouldn't be my favorite. 
but I think they could now. Whereas before this trade, I didn't think they could win the championship. Um, I don't think they had a realistic chance. I think the points you made about the end of game offense are very significant. That's something that we've seen. Really, Nikola Jokic is the only ex- uh, exception to that because he's the one big who's so good at he can even just bring the ball up the court himself so you don't have to pass to him. Joel isn't quite that in terms of what he is in the post. So you're right. That's often a problem for teams that play through their big men. It's often a problem in Minnesota with Carl Anthony Towns getting him the ball in the situations that matter. A, Harden's really good at that, even though I know he's not known for his passing, but he actually is. He's a fantastic passer and really good at it. And B, in the cases where that's less realistic, Harden can get his own offense in a way that that Philadelphia just didn't have that option in the past. I would would slightly quibble with your uh, uh, classification of the picks as meaningless. In fact, if Philly lost this trade, it might be because of the picks down the line. Like, those could really hurt. So you're especially. concerned about the value of the Sacramento pick that was unprotected? So the, so some of those picks? The, it's the 2027 uh, unprotected Philly. Oh, five almost. years from now. We'll, we'll, yeah. you know, more, we'll still be on Morton Moneyball, but I'm not worried about 2020. Joel Embiid won't be the same Joel Embiid he is now in 2027. And, if you, and the, as the line goes in the NBA, and as they've said a million times, if you win a championship, None of that matters. If you win a championship because of this move or in part because of this move, n- nobody gives a damn what happened five years down the line. You can the say, LA Rams, look, we won LA, the championship. LA Rams just, just went to bank on that one. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Ben, listen, man, delight talking to you. Please come back again. We I lo- love seeing your work. You're, you're bringing us up to speed and you're taking us deeper on the NBA and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, guys. We didn't even get a chance to talk about it, but if folks don't mind, look at my stuff on 538 about 530. Uh, wow, excuse me, about referees and how the NBA grades them. It's some of my best work this year. Super interesting. Deep dive into that stuff. You come away impressed with what the NBA is doing and you find out all kinds of things like teams can put in specific complaints about plays and they get to see how they were graded. And it's really a fascinating dive. Ben Dowsett, writer of 538. You can see his work up there. You can also see some of his past work, ESPN, GQ, The Athletic and elsewhere. Thanks for being with us, Ben. That has been two hours of sports analytics, two hours here on SiriusXM. We do it every two weeks. For the whole crew, Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow have been here with me in the last quarter. Adi Weiner had to step away, but Adi um, was here for the first half of the show as well. For Matty Datz, the boss man, for Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.